I love it. Good morning, Israelites. Goodbye, Edomites. Pastor Eli James here. This is Bloodlines on Eurofolk Radio, November 17, 2019. As you can probably tell, I got my foghorn leghorn voice today. Just coming out of a really bad cold. But I'm feeling much better today than yesterday. So, uh, Foghorn Leghorn, one of my favorite cartoon characters. At che- that, that's not a chicken. That's a chicken hawk. And great cartoon character. And a r- real low voice and a uh, southern accent, which I'm not going to try to do. So, spare you, the, I'll spare you <laughs> that, that sort of stuff. But welcome to Bloodlines. And I'm going to be doing part two of the early church fathers on Genesis 1, the conflict between six-day creationism, that being six literal 24-hour days, which it seems that most of the Judeo-Christian denominations have adopted that view, versus old-age creationism, where the word yaum in Hebrew stands for an age or eon, not a literal 24-hour day. And what we found from this article, and let me uh, copy the link here and put it in the chat room, God and Science. <laughs> yes, this is, the <laughs> this is the voice of God speaking. So I uh, just put the link in the chat room. And it's a really excellent article. Uh, from GodInScience.org. And uh, it appears to be an old-age creationist website. However, the article that we've been discussing here is very even-handed and discusses both points of view and other points of view as well, which is really refreshing because typically what we have is you know, only get two two sides and you never get the other points of view. Just like you, know, you have to vote Democrat or Republican and you, know, you don't want to vote for independence because independence aren't owned by the Jews. So this is, uh, you know, the plane is always a third, fourth, fifth, sixth alternative. And uh, But old earth creationism is the position I have adopted all along. I never believed in six-day creationism. So uh, this is the... Uh, point of view that the author adopts here in this article. And we were talking about, uh, just about getting ready to talk about allegorical versus literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. And so the author states here, to understand what is meant by allegorical interpretation, we need to draw a clear distinction between that and plain allegory. Allegory is a figurative or symbolic representation referring to a meaning other than the literal one. Uh, Well, that's not exactly how I would define it. I would define allegory as being a a story turning the, the literal interpretation of the story into into fiction. You turn it into fiction. And uh, the reader must determine which fictional character represents the real character. So it's uh, it always points to a real event in history and real people. So uh, 
So it actually refers to the literal meaning, <laughs> but you have to get that. You have to determine the literal meaning from the allegory. That's how I would put it. Anyway, certain passages of Scripture contain allegory, as well as other figures of speech, which can be understood using the normal rules of interpretation. For example, Paul uses an allegory based on Hagar and Sarah, which we got into last week in great detail, showing that Paul, Paul's use of the allegory was a to point up the literal differences between the, the children of Sarah and the children of Hagar. One is the covenant seed line, the other isn't. To illustrate why the Galatians should not listen to the Judaizers. Well, who are the Judaizers? You have the Pharisees, who were Talmudists, but you also had in these days Judahites who were Torah keepers. You have to keep this distinction in mind. The Judahites had no intention to develop this book called the Talmud. And very, very few biblical historians keep the distinction between these two groups. There, you can't call them both Judaizers. You, you'd have to call one of them Torah keepers. That's the Judahites, and the Judaizers are the Talmudizers, the Talmudists. The Talmudists are Edomite Jews who began pretending to be Israel, i.e. Judah, in the days of Herod, because Herod had assassinated the entire Judahite Sanhedrin, according to Josephus, and began substituting Edomites in place of the Judahites. So there's a huge difference between the Torah-keeping Judahites and the Talmudizer Herod and you know these Edomites. The Talmudizers were not, by any stretch of the imagination, Judahites. The Judahites had never any intention to Talmudize the Scriptures. If anything, they began dabbling in Hellenistic interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So let's continue here. Allegorical interpretation, on the other hand, involves looking for a symbolic or figurative meaning beyond or instead of the literal historical one. Now, now that is that could be Talmudization. That could be Hellenization. But if you're looking for a meaning or trying to inject a meaning, such as Gnostic interpretations, you know, which uh, can go off into wild tangent, tangents like the Greek gods and goddesses, and uh, some very actually very clever uh, allegorical meanings, such as, for example, I mean, this is a really wild one. Uh, some interpreters of the book of Revelation refer to the seven churches in chapters one through three as the seven chakras. Now, that is a wild one. I read a document by a Gnostic who made this claim, and, you know, I said, okay, well, uh, yeah, that's definitely not a literal interpretation. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh. It makes me cough. So, but that's a really wild one. And the people who teach this really believe it. But on the other hand, the people who go way out on limbs like this typically do not believe in the literal interpretation of the scriptures. 
okay? They do not want to even countenance the fact, you know, some of them even deny the literal Christ. They deny, you know, the, the literal meaning of the New Testament, deny that a lot of these events actually took place, etc., etc. And that's typically where the Gnostic, that is, allegorical interpretation deviates from the Holy Scriptures. We know that the Holy Scriptures are full of literal history, and you cannot understand the religion of Israel unless you understand the historical relationship between the chosen people, Israel, and I don't mean Jews, versus the rest of the people involved in the Bible. We are the covenant people. We have a special relationship with Yahweh that nobody else does, as Galatians 4, 21 to 31 proves. So let's continue. So uh, one extreme example comes from Philo, where he interprets allegorically the cherubim guarding the entrance to Eden. That is Genesis 3, 24. Now, the research I'm going to flip to the Wikipedia article here on Philo because my impression of, of Philo is that he was a Judahite living in Alexandria and he was a full-blooded Israelite slash Judahite. He was not an Edomite and he was not a Talmudist. He was a Torah keeper, which would put him into the category of a pure-blooded Judahite not a Jew, as the historical interpreters falsely portray him, and they falsely portray Josephus as a Jew. The word Jew always references Edomites, who are imposters pretending to be Israel slash Judah. And Philo was certainly none of those. So, Philo of Alexandria, also called Philo Judaeus, was a Hellenistic Judahite philosopher, not Jewish philosopher, Judahite. He did not preach Talmudism by any stretch of the imagination. Judaism is Talmudism. He was a Hellenistic Judahite philosopher who lived in Alexandria in the Roman province of Egypt. Philo used philosophy, philosophical allegory to harmonize Judahite, that is, Israelite Hebrew scriptures, mainly the Torah, not the Talmud, with Greek philosophy. His method followed the practices of both Hebrew exegesis and Stoic philosophy. Now, probably what he was doing since Alexandria, Egypt, was a very large province of Judahites going all the way back to uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus and even earlier. Ptolemy Philadelphus was the one who uh, commissioned the, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that's the LXX, which is, of course, the the... The, interpret, no, the exact translation, Septuagint, of the Hebrew into the Greek by Judahites, not by Talmudists, but by Judahites. So the people in Alexandria, Egypt, 
were Torah-keeping Judahites. That's who they were. That's what they were. Just like in Rome, where Paul addressed the Judahite community of the synagogues, in Rome, who were also Torah-keeping Judahites. They were not Talmudists. You have to keep this distinction in mind, and most scholars do not keep this distinction in mind. Talmudists versus Torah keepers. So, so, so he used philosophical allegory to harmonize the Hebrew scriptures with Greek philosophy. Now, why would he have done such a thing? Well, even in the day, even in Paul had difficulty explaining the the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures by Yahshua Messiah to these paganized Greeks who were Israelites. The Israelites living in the Greco-Roman world, they had adopted all kinds of Greek philosophy. So in order to temper the the strain between these paganized Israelites of the Greco-Roman world and the Hebrew scriptures, they would try make comparisons between the two. There was nothing really wrong with that, but what you have to do is make sure the Hebrew scriptures and their literal meaning come through. You don't adapt the Hebrew scriptures to the Greek philosophers. There may be times where the Greek philosophers agree with the Hebrew scriptures, and when they do, you can point that out. So he continues, the author, or Wikipedia continues here. His allegorical exegesis was important for some Christian church fathers, but he had very little reception history with rabbinic Judaism. It's another proof that he was not a Talmudist. He was not an Edomite Jew. He adopted allegorical instead of literal interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. And as I said, he probably did this to you know, to help explain the Hebrew scriptures to these Hellenized Israelites. Some scholars hold that his concept of the Logos as God's creative principle influenced early Christology. That's very interesting. Other scholars deny direct influence but say that Philo and early Christianity borrow from a common source. So they clearly identify Philo here as a Judahite Christian not as a Jew. So I don't think there's any doubt left that Philo was not an Edomite Jew. He was a Judahite who was struggling to adapt Christianity, just as Paul was, to the Hebrew Scriptures. The only event in Philo's life that can be decisively dated is his participation in the embassy to Rome in 40 A.D., he represented the Alexandrian Judahites in a delegation to the Roman Emperor Gaius, also known as Caligula, following civil strife between the Alexandrian Judahite and Greek communities. Now, those Greeks, many of those Greeks were actually Israelites of the dispersion. So if you don't know this history, then you know you, you you'll accept the Jewish version of our own history, which is false. Okay, trying to uh, get this link in here in the chat room. This is the Wikipedia link, link that I'm reading from. 
which is actually a pretty good article here. The story of this event and a few other biographical details are found in Josephus and in Philo's own works, especially in Legatio and Gaium, Embassy to Gaius, of which only two of the original five volumes survive. The thought of Philo was largely inspired by Aristobulus of Peneus and the Alexandrian school. Concerning his work, Wisdom of Solomon, and the occupations of the Therapeutae and the Essenes. Philo has never claim, been claimed as a saint nor doctor of the church. I'm sure the Catholic Church views him as a Jew. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to avoid laughing. It makes me cough. Life. I'm just going to uh, do a couple more paragraphs here. Philo was probably born with the name Julius Philo. His ancestors and family were contemporaries to the rule of the Ptolemaic dynasty and the rule of the Seleucid Empire. So he was a Judite. There was no Talmudists during these days. The Talmudists began their reign under Herod around 33 BC. So these people were all Judites. There were no Talmudists in the world until Herod began impersonating, had the Pharisees start impersonating the Judahite priesthood. Everything points to that as that's the real source of Judaism, that's the real source of Talmudism. So let's continue. Although the names of his parents are unknown, it is known that Philo came from a family which was noble, honorable, and wealthy. More than likely, Judahites. It was either his father or paternal grandfather who was granted Roman citizenship from the Roman dictator Gaius, Julius Caesar. Jerome wrote that Philo came to degenere sacerdotum from a priestly family. So everything points to him being a Judahite. His ancestors and family had social ties and connections to the priesthood in Judea, in Judah, the Hasmonean dynasty, the Herodian dynasty, okay, from the Hasmonean dynasty. So it dates Philo's family as being connected to the Hasmonean dynasty, which were Judahites. Now the Herodian dynasty came later and destroyed true, uh, true Hebrew religion. And the Julio-Claudian dynasty in Rome. So here's the area of history where all the confusion begins between the Edomite Jews and the pure-blooded Judahites in Judea. Philo had two brothers, Alexander the Alabarch and Lysimachus. Through Alexander, Philo had two nephews, Tiberius Julius Alexander and Marcus Julius Alexander. The latter was the first husband of the Herodian princess Bernice. Marcus died in 43 or 44. So it's quite possible that the Judahites of Alexandria, for either political reasons or through ignorance, married into the Herodian dynasty, not realizing that Herod was an Edomite. They probably found out soon enough. One more paragraph here. Philo visited the Second Temple in Jerusalem at least once in his lifetime. 
Philo would have been a contemporary of Jesus and his apostles. Philo, along with his brothers, received a thorough education. They were educated in the Hellenistic culture of Alexandria and Roman culture, to a degree in ancient Egypt culture, and particularly the traditions of, well, it would be Hebrewism, not Judaism. In the study of the Hebrew traditional literature and Greek philosophy, there was only Hebrew traditional literature in those days. The Talmud hadn't been written yet. Philo's dates of birth and death are unknown, but can be judged by Philo's description of himself as old when he was part of the delegation to Gaius Caligula in 38 AD. Jewish history professor Daniel R. Schwartz estimates his birth year as sometime between 20 and 10 BC. Philo's reference to an event under the reign of Emperor Claudius indicates that he died somewhere after 41 AD. Okay. I think that pretty much settles the case that Philo was a Judahite, not an Edomite. Now, the extent to which he was a Hellenizer, you would have to read his books. I'm just talking about his racial background. No doubt in my mind that Philo was a Judahite, not an Edomite Jew. All right. So let's continue here, going back to God and science. And uh, the fact that, well, he, maybe he had an allegorical interpretations of Genesis 1, he wouldn't be the only one. And uh, what we found out from this article was that the early church fathers were pretty much split along the lines of old earth creationism and young earth creationism. The fact that today the vast majority of theologians are young earth creationists is, you know, it's a recent development. And it does not take into consideration the fact that there were early church fathers who disagreed with them and taught old earth creationism. Okay, so let's continue. Historical background on the allegorical interpretation. We'll continue with this section here. In three different ways, allegorical interpretation played an important role in helping the Hellenistic Judahites find a balance between those two different worlds. Okay, so just as Paul was doing in various congregations who came from the Greco-Roman dispersion, he would have to argue against the paganism of the Greco-Roman world in favor of the Hebrew scriptures. And Philo would have done the same thing. So if there was any kind of agreement between the two systems of thought, then you know Philo and Paul would say, okay, well, this is where your tradition agrees with ours, and this is where our tradition disagrees with yours. And so since you're an Israelite, and I'm reminding you of the fact that you're an Israelite, you should prefer the Hebrew scriptures as opposed to the gods and goddesses of, of ancient Greece and current Rome. So let's continue. First, it provided a way to apply scripture passages to the audience's non-Israelite context. But of course, a lot of these people were Israelites and had to be reminded of the fact. Second, it allowed writers to comment on Greek ideas not directly discussed in scripture. In the example I mentioned earlier, Philo used the cherubim as a springboard to write about the nature of the heavens. 
Okay, because the ancient Greeks believed in all kinds of angelic beings. So Philo would compare the cherubim with the uh, you know the Greek versions of the gods and goddesses. Third, some parts of scripture seemed meaningless or even absurd to a non-Israelite audience. Allegorizing them would help blunt those objections. It was in Alexandria that this mode of interpretation eventually crossed over into Christianity. Alexandria was a major intellectual center for early Christendom with an important catechetical school located there and of which both Clement and Origen served as headmasters in their day. So neither Clement or Origen can be considered Judaizers by any stretch of the imagination. But nevertheless, they had to try to reconcile the Hebrew scriptures with the belief system of the Hellenized Israelites. Allegorical interpretation served a similar purpose in the early church as it had among the Hellenistic Judahites because they too were surrounded by Greco-Roman culture. Even more, the early church, including all of the church fathers, was itself almost entirely non-Jewish, and that's the correct use of the term, they weren't Talmudic Edomite Jews, with little knowledge of the Hebrew language or Judahite culture. It depends on which church father. Some of them did, some of them didn't have connections to the Hebrew scriptures. So the Old Testament as plain Judahite history or Israelite history would have had little meaning to the church fathers or their listeners. I think that's too broad a statement. They certainly would have understood that everything Christian came directly from the Old Testament. They would have understood that. Origen was the leader in popularizing allegorical interpretation. Even more, he codified it in his threefold method of interpretation called first principles. In his system, interpretation occurred on three different levels, paralleling the tripartite nature of man, body, soul, and spirit. The first level of, of interpretation is the body representing the plain, literal, obvious meaning, which isn't always plain, literal, because many of the Hebrew words had multiple meanings, and uh, and who's the one who decides which is the plain literal meaning and which one isn't? You have to figure from the context what the meaning is. Followed by the soul consisting of moral principles, and lastly, the spirit representing the deeper meaning that is brought out by allegorical interpretation. Now, this third is where we get into trouble. Because where what often happens, this is what Gnosticism essentially is. By allegor, allegorizing the Hebrew scriptures, you lose their literal meaning. Certainly newcomers to Hebrew Christianity, and that's what it is, Hebrew Christianity, covenant people Christianity, not Jewish Christianity. There's no such thing. When the plain, literal body interpretation seemed absurd, it indicated that the reader needed to look beyond it using allegorical spiritual interpretation. Now, this is a very interesting statement because what we do in Christian identity is we use word studies. 
And if the meaning of a particular passage is unclear, or there seems to be a contradiction, then what we do is we look at the Greek and Hebrew words, see how those words are used in as many possible you know, paracopes or passages as possible to find out what this word really means. Because very often it's badly translated because the translator hasn't bothered to look what the original meaning of the word is. And when you do that, you come much, much closer to the literal meaning, and you don't have to you know, tell stories about it. Continuing, while this mystical approach may seem extreme or unnecessary, it did serve to apply the text to people's current situations and concerns. Okay, well, I guess what the author is getting at here is that people like Philo, let's put it this way in terms of a question. To what extent did the early church fathers understand that they were the Hebrew Israelites? To what extent did they understand that? And so maybe that should be the subject of next, next week's show in following up on the early church fathers. Anyway, continuing, today we might call this method contemporary application. Okay, so an old story, uh, a morality tale. What's the moral of the story? The early church saw the entire Old Testament as being about Jesus Christ, the Hebrew Scriptures. So they would certainly have understood that Yahshua Messiah was a Hebrew, a pure-blooded Judahite, and there would be no conflict for them in uh, expressing their view of him as a Hebrew at all. The only question is whether the Hellenized people of the Greco-Roman world, whether the early church fathers recognized them as Israelites. Now, we know, of course, that James, in James 1.1, addresses his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, greetings. So if he understood it, why shouldn't the early church fathers? But that is really, it's actually a significant question, and we, maybe we could deal with this next week. Continue here. Every detail, not just specific prophecies, could be viewed as serving as a type or symbol of Jesus Christ, along with a variety of other non-literal devices Allegorical interpretation served as a way to uncover hidden Christological meanings. Now, probably, one of the reasons for going into this type of interpretation was to oppose the Talmudists, because there was a huge debate, an angry, ugly debate, between the Judahite Christians and the dispersed Christians who were just coming into being, just learning about Christianity, the Talmudists. The Talmudists totally opposed Septuagint because they had no control over that. And it was through the Septuagint that they argued against the Talmudists. So there was this huge debate going on, very angry, an ugly debate 
going on between the Jews, the Edomite Jews, and the pure-blooded Judahites and Israelites. So the Israelite Christians clearly adopted the Septuagint over against the Masoretic text because the Edomite Jews had control of the Hebrew Scriptures and uh, the emerging Israelite church was not you know was not didn't, was not privy to those scriptures so they pretty much had to use the Septuagint by default continuing for example scriptural references to wood were sometimes even as seen as prefiguring the cross of Christ i will dwell on this in more detail in part 3 but for now we'll simply emphasize that most of the church fathers not just the allegorically inclined ones, viewed the Old Testament through a Christological lens. Well, again, uh, probably the reason for this is to oppose Talmudism. We see this, for example, in Hilary of Poitiers' homilies on the Psalms, where he views the Psalms as primarily being about Yahshua Messiah, and so downplays their original historical context. Well, I think uh, probably it's understandable because the early church fathers were trying to explain to all Israel, the Judahites and the scattered ten tribes, that yeah, the Messiah had come. And therefore, that's what they emphasized. Allegorical interpretation went on to dominate the theology of the Middle Ages. It was the Protestant reformers who ultimately rejected it in favor of a literal plain-meaning approach. They likewise specifically rejected Augustine's instantaneous creation view, even though they were deeply indebted to him in most other areas. I wholeheartedly agree. The big bag. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I had the cough. So, so Augustus apparently preached the big bag. <laughs> he was the first one to preach the big bag. <laughs> and, uh, and none of the early church fathers uh, agreed with that. So that's one of the other interpretations, uh, one of the other views of Genesis 1 in vogue. And I'm sure Augustine had a few followers. He says, I wholeheartedly agree with the reformers on these points. If allegorical interpretation is therefore to be rejected, does this invalidate Augustine's challenge to the calendar day interpretation? and therefore lend credibility to Mook's thesis that the church fathers were predominantly young earth creationists. No, it does not. Okay, just because there were a few people who didn't believe in the young earth cre creation story, it doesn't prove anything one way or the other. It, uh, we're sim simply being told that there were different views among the early church fathers. Next heading. Legitimate non-allegorical concerns. While we should not follow the specific interpretations of the 8 to the 16, I'm not going to bother trying to figure out what that is. It's a footnote here before going into the three areas. Bullet point number one, nature of the first three creation days. Very important stuff here, folks. If the sun, moon, and stars were not created until the fourth creation day, as popularly understood by the church fathers, then what was the nature of the first three creation days? 
Could they be literal 24-hour days if there's no sun, moon, and stars in the sky? Of course, my position on this is that the Earth was just coming out of a huge catastrophe, namely the destruction of Atlantis, with the Earth being covered by dark clouds for several hundred years, actually. And Genesis 1, the gap theory, tells us this is uh, how Moses would have described the looking at the skies for the first three eons after this catastrophe. So the story is being told from the perspective of someone standing on the earth. Not that the sun, moon, and stars didn't exist yet, but they weren't visible from the earth yet. Okay? So that's what's going on in, in the first three creation days or yams. So let me repeat this. If the sun, moon, and stars were not created until the fourth creation day, as popularly understood by the church fathers, then what was the nature of the first three creation days? How could they be ordinary solar days? Very good question. That is 24-hour days. If the sun did not yet exist. This question provoked more discussion and disagreement among the early church fathers than any other part of Genesis 1. Philo, Origen, and Augustine saw this as a clear proof that at least the first three days could not be ordinary days. And I would agree with that. A detailed discussion of the fourth creation day and its implications for the days of creation can be found in chapter 7, A Matter of Days, by Hugh Ross. So how you interpret the word yom in Genesis 1 makes a huge difference as to whether you're a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist. What I'm Yes, I'm getting over a cold, spoiler, yes, and uh, a foghorn leghorn this morning. And so what we're talking about here shows that the early church fathers at least saw a contradiction here, which the modern Judeo-Christian interpreters should also understand, hey, there's a problem here. How could the first three days of Genesis be literal 24-hour days if there was no sun? to be seen in the sky. Why? Because the earth was so covered with thick clouds, there's no way you could tell the difference between day and night. It had to be kind of a foggy mountain dew over, over the waves of the earth, over the atmosphere of the earth. Now let's continue. So this is a major point that the early church fathers would not agree with the modern Young Earth view that these are literal 24-hour days. They at least would say, well, the first three days could not be literal 24-hour days because there was no sun in the sky yet. Genesis 2, 4. This verse uses the words in the day to summarize all of the preceding events described in Genesis 1. So in other words, the word yaum in Genesis 2, 4 can't possibly be a literal 24-hour day because it refers to all of the days, the whole whole of Genesis chapter 1, as in that day. 
So here we have a completely different usage of the word yom, meaning an age, obviously means an age here, not a literal 24-hour day. To summarize all of the preceding events described in Genesis 1. This usage seems to equate the six days of Genesis 1 with a single yom, eon, which caused considerable confusion in the early church, which is understandable. One way that some fathers resolved this apparent contradiction was to view the days as being instantaneous periods. Today we understand in the day in this verse to refer to an indeterminate period of time, thank you very much, an eon, covering all the events of Genesis 1, which was seven eons, and therefore longer than 24 hours. Thank you very much. Number three. The seventh day is not closed out. Each of the first six days is closed out with the phrase, quote, and there was evening and there was morning on the next day. And in my work on this subject, I said the evening and morning, that's a metaphor for the beginning and the ending of this eon. That's what it is. So this is metaphorical. This is obviously metaphorical because they couldn't see any sun in the first three days. How do you tell the difference between evening and morning when there's no sun in the sky? Everything had to be like a consistent gray. Now there's an interesting historical fact. And this goes back into, oh man, this is eons. When the earth was covered with all of these clouds, before the first yom. I'm trying to remember the phrase that the uh, pagans of Northern Europe use for this, uh, for this era of time. Anyway, there, uh, there supposedly was an opening in the sky at the North Pole and probably at the South Pole as well, into which light, sunlight, could, could get in. So that being the case, the sunlight would reflect off the bottoms of the clouds once getting into the atmosphere and bouncing around the planet, which would give you kind of a, I don't know, twilight? What would you call it? A hazy, constant day, daylight with the sunlight reflecting off the clouds and giving you a, a sort of daylight, you know, a dim daylight 24 hours a day, okay? And so uh, I can't remember what the term is for that, but uh, there's a, a detailed description of how this could be possible from the northern you know, northern lights and what, what have you. So it was not clear that these days were very, you know, the night was really dark and the day was really light. There was kind of a haze 24 hours a day. So, but the important point here in this bullet point number three is that the seventh day is not closed, closed out. So he says here, this phrase is conspicuously absent from the seventh creation day, that is the evening and morning, that's conspicuously absent from the seventh creation yom, which indicates that this yom is still ongoing 
and so spans a time much longer than an ordinary solar day. Whether it's ongoing or not, it's definitely longer than 24 hours. Psalm 95.11 and Hebrews 4.1-11 further support the idea that we are still in the seventh day. At a minimum, this contradicts the simple calendar day view where each day is a natural 24-hour day. Okay, so uh, obviously the author here is an old earth creationist, not a young earth creationist. And that's the category I put myself in. So he concludes from this section. So what are we to conclude from this? First, the fathers who used allegorical interpretation did have at least three significant scriptural reasons for rejecting a calendar day interpretation. Second, it was issues like these three that led them to read Genesis allegorically because the calendar day view seemed impossible to them, which is understandable because they had really no science to fall back on to explain what might have happened. Third, recognition that the days of creation need not or even should not be understood as simple solar days is a tradition going back as far as Philo in the first century. So, in other words, the literal 24-hour day interpretation that is most popular among Judeo-Christians today is not the view of most of the early church fathers. They understood that there were problems with this interpretation. And so when there's problems that you can't explain, you put the explanation off until you have more facts to back you up. So these, the early church fathers had more sense than today's Judeo-Christian ministers. <laughs> Swamp Fox says, I should have oil of oregano. Take that full strength, Swamp Fox. <laughs> Ouch, that stuff burns. I didn't think of that. I should have put a couple drops in a glass of hot tea before doing today's show. Anyway, this is the, the best interpretation. You cannot assume that the word yaum in Genesis chapter 1 means a literal 24-hour day. You can, that's an assumption that is not justified in any case. Next heading, hermeneutics in the early church. Now let's consider those who Book has deemed literalists, namely Lactantius, Victorinus, Ephraim the Syrian, and Basil. Book asserts these four taught that the creation days were normal 24-hour days. So if these fathers interpreted Genesis literally, now that's not literal. This goes back to the point I made earlier. What does What's a literal yaum in the context of Genesis 1? Everything suggests it's not a 24-hour day. So is, so is 24-hour day a literal interpretation? Only because you don't know that the word yaum has numerous meanings and you have to choose the best one. The best one is the most literal. So if these fathers interpreted Genesis 1, quote, literally, then does that mean theologians today should interpret it the same way? Over the last decade, both young earth and old earth creationists have written many books and articles purporting to demonstrate how the patristics, that is the early church fathers, 
support their own creation view, and there was disagreement among them. Typically, both camps present the ancient leaders' interpretations as isolated quotes or simplistic caricatures. I hate it when people do that. Taking quotes out of context and and being overly simplistic. This tactic makes everything seem so neat and clear. But you're not being honest when you do that. Reading the original writings in their entirety, however, completely shatters overly simplistic understandings of the church fathers. They were not to be understood as young earth creationists. They all, even in their own, those who favored that view, had their doubts as well. Studying these august figures in their original historical context is critical to piecing together a more complete picture of what they believed and, more importantly, to understanding how they arrived at their conclusions. Having read much of the original writings for myself, hooray! (laughs) A Bible scholar who does real research. I was surprised at how differently the church fathers interpreted the Old Testament compared to how most people would understand it today. Yeah, because the Judeos have adopted the literal 24-hour view, which has very little support. Some of the fathers' conclusions seemed illogical or even bizarre by modern standards. Like I said, they didn't have science in those days. Robert Bradshaw recognized this as well. In his study of the early church, Bradshaw provides an important discussion of early church hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is simply argumentation of proper proper understanding of particular verses, and how it differs from today. Though Bradshaw views this subject from a young earth perspective, he takes a well-balanced approach to the topic of early church hermeneutics. I'll provide only a limited summary here. The key reason the church fathers often interpret scripture differently than we do today is because they saw the Old Testament as being primarily Christological. Well, I think the, the point here is that they were trying to explain to the Israelites of emerging Christianity that Yahshua Messiah was the Christ, the Messiah. And so they stressed that point. Uh, Maybe we should stress it today. (laughs) According to Gerald Bray, quote, Christians generally believe that the Old Testament spoke about Jesus Christ, not merely prophetically, but in types and allegories which the Spirit revealed to Christians. That's fine. I don't see any problem there. But that doesn't mean that there's a literal meaning to the Old Testament verses. There's all kinds of dual fulfillments of prophecy as well. They employed typology and other non-literal devices to allow them to see Jesus in these passages and hence connect scripture to their current situation. Well, uh, one example of Christology and typology would be to view Melchizedek as literally Christ in the flesh Way back when. And the angel with whom Jacob wrestled was literally Jesus Christ in the flesh, wrestling with Jacob. 
Now, you can take this stuff literally or not. So whatever your view on who Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham paid tithes, that's one alternative interpretation you have. In my opinion, that person was one of the elder sons devolving from Adam through Noah and coming down, literal descendant of Adam, a real live person. The book of Jasher says it was Shem. This may or may not be correct. But uh, but our good friend and sponsor here, oh, he just put a, uh, anyway, Brother Abair uh, is doing a series on the Melchizedek priesthood, and I'm very much looking forward to that and getting his opinion on that. So, in my opinion, the Melchizedek priesthood was a very literal descendancy of the elder son of the elder son of the elder son of the elder son. Okay? But it was an office. And the reason why, uh, I think it was Peter, who says that it was out without father and mother is because the, the line of descent is not straightforward father to son, father to son, to son, to son, to son. It's elder brother, elder brother, elder brother. It's an office that was created for the elder sons. And it was not uh, determined specifically by direct line of descent. You had to be an Adamite, of course, in the early days. But you were not directly descended from the previous Melchizedek high priest. Sometimes you got skipped. Sometimes people were skipped. For example, Noah got skipped. I think it was Noah who got skipped. And Enoch. Enoch died before his father. So Enoch could not have taken the office. There was somebody still alive as the priest, high priest of Melchizedek. He died before he could assume the office. So then I think it went to Methuselah. So continuing. So if these fathers interpreted Genesis literally, then, do, then does that mean that theologians today should interpret it the same way? Of course not. Over the last decade, both young earth and old earth creationists have written all these books and they, they like to use isolated quotes and simplistic caricatures. And uh, that's typical. <laughs> that's typical. Serious scholarship among the Judeo-Christian priesthood is extremely rare. Extremely rare. So, this author has claims to have read all this stuff himself, or much of it, which is more than we can say for most of the Judeo denominations. And so he says, okay, since the early church's main objective was to look at the Hebrew scriptures, well, they didn't have the Hebrew scriptures, they had the Septuagint, search the Septuagint for both literal and figurative references to the coming of Christ. Nothing wrong with that. 
Nothing wrong with that at all. But sometimes you might be wrong. They employed typology and other non-literal devices to allow them to see in these passages and hence connect scripture to their current situation, all of which is very legitimate. The literal historical meaning would correspondingly have been treated as secondary, not surprising since straight Jewish history or Talmudic history would have little meaning to non-Jewish Christians. Since there is no such thing as a Jewish Christian, this point is irrelevant. Whether what the Jew, the Jews utterly deny that Yahshua is Messiah, and so, and they already made that denial in these days. So that's why the early church fathers would have had a revulsion toward Judaism. All the church fathers interpreted in this fashion, albeit to different degrees. For example. Justin Martyr saw references to trees or wood in the Old Testament, the tree of life in Eden, the oak of Mamre, Genesis thirteen eighteen, the staffs of Moses and Aaron, and the floating wood of Elisha, as prefiguring the cross of Christ. Could be. Might not be. But that doesn't, one way or the other, doesn't deny the coming of the Christ and the typology thereof. The typology is that Jesus was a type and there were Old Testament types of Christ. The primary type is the sacrificial lamb instituted by Moses and Aaron for the Levitical priesthood. So the type is the slaughtering of the lamb at Passover every year until the fulfillment of the type, namely the literal coming, of Yahshua Messiah and the sacrifice of same at Calvary in 33 AD. Once that was fulfilled, the typology was no longer necessary. Origen added several more examples, such as the cedar wood that played a part in the ritual cleansing of lepers and the wood that made the bitter water sweet. To this list and other church fathers provided still more. Okay, I would say, if you want a figurative meaning for all this wood, trees, the word tree in Hebrew, actually means bloodlines. It can be the DNA of trees, and it can be the DNA of Adamites, and it can be the DNA of other races as well, depending on the context. So the word tree, coming from the Hebrew, had other meanings besides literal tree that has the trunk, branches, and leaves, etc. Yahshua is the tree of life. That's not a literal wooden tree. So you can do all kinds of metaphorizing it that you want. But there's text, there's passages where they are definite reference to him and our bloodline. And whether or not the founding or the early church fathers had a, a view of these bloodlines, I'm not sure. Again, we'll see if we can determine that next week. So, so whenever wood is mentioned, but wood and tree are different concepts. So it seems that almost any piece of wood mentioned in the Old Testament could be viewed as prefiguring the cross of Jesus, not necessarily his bloodline. Water, particularly Noah's flood, was likewise seen as prefiguring baptism. Well, that's, I don't know, we want to be baptized that way. 
Numerological association was another commonly used tool in interpretation. A simple example is the popular notion of the eighth day. Given that creation occurred in seven days, the eighth was taken as symbolizing the new creation, which hasn't happened yet. This idea was established when the fathers saw parallels to Jesus Christ being raised on the eighth day, the first day of the second week, and even babies being circumcised on the eighth day. Even more important, the church fathers viewed the eighth day as marking the beginning of the new creation after seven days of 1,000 years each. So if that's how they viewed it, they could not have been literal 24-hour day interpreters. This eschatological idea was also based on numerological association. See below. In some cases, numerological arguments were taken to the extreme. For example, in the apocryphal Epistle of Barnabas, Abraham's 318 servants are interpreted as prefiguring the cross of Christ. This is done by first interpreting 318 as 300 plus 10 plus 8. Next, the numbers 10 and 8 are seen as denoting the letters I and H, the initials for Jesus. And HH means Heil Hitler. And 300 is denoted by T, which resembles a cross. Well, it's all very interesting. It's romantic. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't laugh. Makes me cough. So, yeah, it's a it's a fanciful interpretation, but it might not be absolutely wrong. Whether it's really relevant to determining real Christianity, that's another question. I don't think it's very relevant. While we may be confused and surprised by these examples of spiritual rather than literal interpretation, it did not come from a low view of Scripture. The Church Fathers held a high view of Scripture, seeing even the most minute details pointing toward Yahshua Messiah. We must understand that the plain historical literal interpretation would have had little meaning to the Fathers and their non-Israelite audience. I'm not, I, don't, I disagree with this statement because he's assuming that it's Jewish, that the Old Testament is Jewish. No, I think the early church fathers and their Israelite listeners and congregants would have wanted to understand the Old Testament as much as possible in order that they could understand that Yahshua was, in fact, the Messiah. That That's a very productive enterprise. But interpreting with all of these uh, numerological and other figures you know it's it's nice it's interesting it's fun but is it relevant okay so remember they were using the septuagint which was the greek translation of the hebrew scriptures so you could see that the divorcement between the edomite jews and the judaites and israelites of christianity the christian israelites the Christian Judahites, because there is no such thing as a Christian Jew or a Jewish Christian. That's how this should be understood. The Judaizers denied Christ. Then they weren't Judahites either or Israelites. 
They were race-mixed Edomites, is what they were, in Canaanites. By using non-literal association, they could connect it to their own lives. Well, I mean, if there's some kind of connection, find a dandy. So the literalists shared the same need for a meaning beyond the simple literal as the allegorists, whom I described last week, did. Okay, yeah, so both the literalists and the allegorists indulged in this practice. Most importantly, the literalists often employed non-literal devices. In fact, the distinction between the literalists and allegorists is at times more an issue of degree than kind. Book's crisp delineation between the two groups is therefore rather misleading. In sum, simply because the literalists do not, did not resort to allegorical interpretation, it does not necessarily follow that they always interpreted scriptural literally. And if they didn't know the meanings of the Hebrew words, that's even more important. Victorinus numerology. Victorinus of Patau, late 3rd century, is cited by Book and many others as teaching that the creation days were specifically 24 hours long. This is based on the surviving fragment of his treatise on the creation of the world. Book supports his conclusion with a short quote from Victorina's work, which I will include verbatim, to show what details Book does and does not include. Okay, so here's the exact quote. Even such is the rapidity of that creation, as is contained in the Book of Moses, which he wrote about its creation, and which is called Genesis. God produced that entire mass for the adornment of his majesty in six days on the seventh to which he consecrated it. In the beginning, God made the light and divided it into the exact measure of 12 hours by day and 12 by night. The author comments, This passage seems to be one of the strongest declarations in the early church that the days of creation were 24-hour periods. But a full reading paints a different picture. Victorina's primary focus is numerological association, not an attempt to correctly interpret Genesis 1. So, Victorinus may have been a Gnostic. For example, the fourth creation day he associates with the four elements. There you go. Earth, air, fire, and water. That's a Gnostic interpretation, folks. So are you going to take the work of a Gnostic? And believe, therefore, that it, the Yom in Genesis 1 means literal 24-hour days? Is that what you're going to do, Mr. Book? The fourth creation day he associates with the four elements, four seasons, four gospels, four rivers in Eden, etc., the four living creatures around God's throne. He makes frequent use of the number seven, the key number in Genesis 1, and also Revelation, relating it to at least 20 other occurrences throughout Scripture. 24 also held great significance for him as found in the final paragraph on the creation of the world, which Book does not quote. Now he quotes it here. The day, as I have above related, is divided into two parts by the number 12, by the 12 hours of day and night. Therefore, doubtless, there are appointed also 12 angels of the day and 12 angels of the night in accordance to wit with the number of hours, 
For these are the twenty-four witnesses of the days and nights which sit before the throne of God. Well, the interpretation I have is that the twenty-four witnesses of Revelation are the twelve apostles and the twelve sons of Jacob. Twelve plus twelve equals twenty-four. No numerology necessary. We see that Victorinus' emphasis on a day as 24 hours is just a numerological parallel to the 24 elders that surround the throne of God in Revelation 4.4. Subdividing a day into exactly two 12-hour periods is likewise driven by numerical symbolism because the actual length of daytime varies considerably (laughs) with location and season. For the most part, We only have 12, literal 12-hour day and nights at the equinoxes. That's only two days a year. The rest of the time, you either have longer nights or longer days. In no case is Victorina specifically trying to address the nature of the Genesis days. He's using those days as allegorical devices for his own purposes. Book's use of Victorinus to support a calendar day view shows deficient scholarship and selective quoting. Oh, I hate it when people do that. Clearly, taking uh, passages out of context, clearly Victorinus is far from being a literalist, according to how we use that term today. So he actually does more to undercut Book's 24-hour day interpretation than he does to support it. But Mr. Book found a good quotation which seems to support his perspective. So, this is good stuff. Okay. Uh, Swamp Fox. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So, Enoch was not able to take the office of the high priest of Melchizedek. Thank you, Swampox. So, now, is that a metaphorical (laughs) statement? (laughs) I I have to stop laughing. It makes me cough. All right, let's continue here. Bear with me, folks. Only 20 more minutes to go of this uh, foghorn, leghorn uh, sermon. So, so what do you mean by literal? What do you mean by figurative? What do you mean by metaphor? The, the point is, there has to be a literal fact that is being represented by the words, whether they are metaphorical or literal. Okay? The sun is shining outside. That's a literal statement. Now, If it's nighttime, that statement would be false. If it's a cloudy day, that would be only partially true. Okay, you have to, what do you mean by literal? What do you mean by figurative? It's always fair weather when hepcats get together. That's a song from the 40s. Book lists Hippolytus of Rome, 3rd century, as defending the idea that human history would last exactly 6,000 years. Here I'll focus on a related point where Hippolytus teaches that Jesus was born in the year 5500 from creation. However, Hippolytus did not derive this value from adding up the ages in Scripture, 
although he may have borrowed that estimate from others who did. Instead, his argument rests on an allegorical interpretation of three different Bible verses. So let's look at him. First, he interprets Revelation 17.10, Five kings have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. As referring allegorical to millennia. Wow. That's the first I've heard. That, that sounds Gnostic to me. Hence suggesting that Christ lived between the 5th and 6th millennia. Second, he views the sum of the Ark of the Covenant's dimensions, five and a half cubits in Exodus 25.10, as marking five and a half millennia to Christ. The Ark was commonly seen as a Christological symbol. Third, he interprets the words, now is the sixth hour, John 19.14, as corresponding to a half day, or 500 years. In all three cases, Hippolytus' arguments are highly non-literal. Quote, literal, unquote, Hebrew. There is an even broader and more significant problem that applies to all of the church fathers. They did not know Hebrew, and that's probably true. This is critical because ancient Hebrew is very different from Greek and Latin. The church fathers were dependent upon Greek and Latin translations, which affected how they interpreted Genesis. So it is rather misleading to refer to Basil and company as literalists when their interpretation was not, in fact, based on the actual Hebrew. This same problem exists today where commenters rely heavily on English translations. Thank you very much. Allegorists slash literalists conclusions. Book draws a sharp line between the allegorists and literalists among the church fathers. In reality, this distinction is blurry. When it came to the Old Testament, all the early church fathers used an assortment of non-literal modes of interpretation to varying degrees, as we still do today. In the end, even the so-called literalists weren't always literal and were not following ancient Hebrew. As a consequence, we would be better served by re-examining Genesis 1 in its original Hebrew rather than relying on the interpretation of the early church fathers. Thank you very much. And we have done this on several occasions here at Eurofolk Radio, giving you know, the true meaning of the Hebrew word yom and the metaphorical usage of you know the evening and morning, because it can't be a literal evening and morning, because the time between the evening and the morning is only 12 hours. So that has to be figurative. And it means more the uh, like the metaphor, the comings and goings of the Israelites. The comings and goings of your daily routine. The evening and the morning. So when the eon started and when it ended is basically what that means. But it's, there, wasn't, there wasn't a better expression to be used at the time, I guess. Okay. So... Continuing here, the creation day. Oh, let's see. Patristics were young earth creationists? Question mark. Since the church fathers were clearly divided on the interpretation of the days of creation, Book shifts his focus to the age of the earth, where he can show that there was widespread agreement among the church fathers that the earth is very young, less than 6,000 years old. 
Many of the fathers, including allegorical interpreters, taught this specific view. By my own research, none of the fathers taught an old earth. Book concludes, quote, Allegorical interpreters among the fathers were especially remarkable in resisting the old earth theories of their day. Now, I wonder if that's a true statement or whether they had never considered the old earth interpretation. Book sees this agreement between the allegorists and those he deems literalists as proof that the church was united in rejecting the idea that the earth is billions of years old. Taken together, Book's evidence seems to lend strong support for viewing the fathers as young earth creationists. As if that is not enough, Book then plays his ultimate trump card, quote, Another strong proof of the young earth creationism of the church fathers is their sex-slash-septa millennial view, that is, six versus seven millennial view, that the earth was less than 6,000 years old. This refers to a popular belief among the fathers that Yahshua Messiah would set up his millennial kingdom on the 6,000th year after creation. But even that, the millennial kingdom is a false teaching. That's the assumption that after Jesus Christ comes and kicks ass and destroys the, the, the false prophet and the beast system, that somehow, after a thousand years, Satan would come back and wreak havoc yet again. There's no support in Scripture anywhere for this interpretation. That's simply bad interpretation. So, But there are a lot of Judeo-Christians who believe that this millennial kingdom will come after Yahshua Messiah gets rid of the beast and the false prophet. Those holding to this framework would have had to believe the world was less than 6,000 years old. Hence, books claim for that the patristic fathers were young earth creationists. Surely this is an open and shut case. Or is it? Creation Week Pattern for Human History. What book names the sex-slash-septa millinery construct? Boy, that's assuming an awful lot. <laughs> I prefer to call the Creation Week Pattern for Human History. This view posits that the Creation Week of Genesis 1 serves as a template for God's plan for Adam kind, not humanity. God created the world in six quote-unquote days, regardless of the nature of those days. So human history would also span six quote days, each 1,000 years long, based on Psalm 90 verse 4, which he quotes here. A thousand years in your sight are like a day for Yahweh. Taken together, all of the post-creation history would encompass exactly 6,000 years. This would be followed by the seventh millennial day, paralleling the Sabbath rest, that the church identified with Christ's millennial kingdom. After this is the start of the eighth day which marks the inauguration of the new creation. Well, it's good. Now, this gives me the rationale for this millennial kingdom interpretation of Revelation chapters 19 and 20. So this is the basis of it here, this metaphorical interpretation of the seventh and eighth day. But what is, so the seventh day would be the rest from Genesis 
chapter 1. So they're imposing this interpretation of Genesis 1 onto Revelation 19 and 20. This gives me more insight into why the millennials are so insistent that there will be this thousand-year rest. But it's not a thousand-year period of rest, folks. If you read the account in Revelation 19 and 20, people's heads are being chopped off. It's not uh, the reign of Christ. It's What it says, it's the reign of the saints. That is the emergence of the Protestants against the Roman Catholic Church. That's what that verse is really about. So, you know, it's all a matter of interpretation, you know, especially in the book of Revelation. Because there's hardly a literal verse in the book of Revelation. It's all allegorical. But it still has a literal meaning. You have to really dig deep to find out what that meaning is. And the idea that Yahshua would reign for a thousand years and then give up that reign back to Satan. What happens then? But there's nothing in the book of Revelation that describes Satan's rule after that 1,000-year period. Instead, what, we, what the book of Revelation actually says, that Satan would be loosed from the bottomless pit and would rule for a little season. That's the season between the House of Rothschild emerging after Napoleon let the Jews out of the ghettos to the Judgment Day. And Satan will be judged at the same time as the beast and the false prophet. Andy and I are doing a series on that, and we'll get into great detail on his show. All right, so let's continue with about six minutes left. So, so, so a lot of this interpretive business is going on here. It's, it's, it's uh, interpretation of Genesis 1 that leads to this millennial kingdom interpretation by many Judeos, okay? Interesting, I never had... Uh, come across this before, but it makes a lot of sense. This is why they would be so insistent that this millennial kingdom would be like the day of rest. After this is the start of the eighth day, which marks the inauguration of the new creation. Book documents that at least eight fathers seem to have taught this millennial framework. Robert Bradshaw, a young earth creationist, also provides an extensive discussion of this view and includes additional names. Well, obviously this is interpretation. This can't be taken literally. Continuing, the exact origin of this model is uncertain, but it seems to have risen in Jewish circles. <laughs> okay. Should we accept Jewish interpretations, folks? The exact origin of this model is uncertain, but it seems to have arisen in Jewish circles perhaps a century or two before Jesus Christ's time. Okay, so he's probably talking about this would be the Maccabean period, Hasmonean period. So, uh, and possibly the Essenes. The Essenes had a very apocalyptic view of the scriptures. But this was even before the apocalypse was written by John. 
It's likely that this model developed at least partially out of the apocalyptic ferment of the time. Very good. With Israel under control, thanks for not saying Jews. With Israel under the control of the Greeks and later the Romans, apocalyptic literature emphasized God's sovereign control over all things, including history. Having a clear formula for when God would act on behalf of his people encouraged faithfulness amidst such chaotic times. This particular 6,000-year framework was popular among Jewish rabbis who further subdivided it into three 2,000-year periods, the Age of Chaos, the Age of the Law, and the Age of the Messiah, which, according to them, hasn't happened yet. To put this in context, some early Jewish sources placed creation around 4,000 B.C., Using that as a starting point, the age of the law would have begun with Abraham around 2000 B.C., and the Messiah would inaugurate the Messianic age in the early 1st century. For the apocalyptic writers of the 1st and 2nd century B.C., living under foreign domination, the promise of the Messiah coming soon to rescue them was enormously encouraging. Thus, this framework was popular even though it was not derived from a literal interpretation of Scripture. So he's, he's using the term Jewish rabbis to be Hebrew sages because there were no Jewish rabbis until the times of the Herodians. Christians later adopted this model. Since the church used the Greek Septuagint instead of the Hebrew text, they generally thought creation occurred around 5600 to 5500 BC, which is much better than the Jewish rabbis. The church then used the Creation Week framework to predict Christ's return on the 6,000th year rather than his coming on the 4,000th as the Jewish rabbis had taught. The seventh millennium paralleling the Sabbath rest was identified with Jesus' millennial kingdom. All of this had important eschatological implications because it predicted that the end times would be around the 4th century. Well, they were wrong, weren't they? <laughs> Starting with Eusebius in the fourth century, you know, and this is you know this is common. We well Christians want the end to come. Jews don't want the end to come because they know they get burnt, toasted. Starting with Eusebius in the fourth century, the date for creation was revised to around 5200 BC. So if if this is all correct, let, let's say. 5500 BC. Then the seventh day, the day of rest, has already happened. It was the latter of the last 2,000 years, the so called gospel age. So the kingdom ought to come without a millennial pause pretty soon. The seventh millennium paralleling the Sabbath was identified with Jesus' millennial kingdom. That's bad interpretation. All of us had important implications, etc. In the fifth century, Jerome's Latin Vulgate translation restored the ages at fatherhood in the Genesis genealogies given in the Hebrew text. So as the Vulgate became accepted, dates for creation subsequently shifted to around 4000 B.C., 
Following the Jewish model, scholars placed Jesus' first coming around the 4,000th year, but this placed his second coming in what was then the far future around 2000 AD, which we're in right now. So, folks, uh, this is an excellent article from GodandScience.org. And uh, we'll uh, complete this next week on Bloodlines. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Hopefully I'll, I'll be rid of this cold by then. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time, folks.